go inside the 2021 Giro d'Italia with daily video blogs from pro riders Larry Warbass and Daniel Oss, as well as tech advice from some World Tour team mechanics. That's right, this is just some of the cool exclusive content we have on VeloNews.com this month for our Active Pass and VeloNews Pass subscribers. That's right, go to VeloNews.com forward slash Active Pass and you can sign up. $99 for 12 months of Active Pass, $49 for 12 months of VeloNews Pass, and both of those get you to the cool exclusive content on VeloNews.com this month. Active Pass also gets you access to Roll Massif events, coaching advice, two VeloPress books, magazine subscriptions, the list goes on and on. You can learn more, of course, by going to VeloNews.com forward slash Active Pass, and you can check out all the cool stuff from the Giro d'Italia. We have so much exclusive content going up this month, including the video blogs, including some mailbag columns. We're going to be fielding your questions about the race and answering them with the help of Larry, Daniel, and some other experts. So again, check out VeloNews Active Pass. VeloNews.com forward slash Active Pass. Sign up today. Okay, let's get on with this week's podcast. Welcome back to the Vela News Podcast. Fred Dreyer coming to you on a soggy and damp Tuesday morning here at the home offices outside of Boulder, Colorado. It is May 11th and it snowed last night, folks. And here's what happens every year in Colorado. We always get a mid-May snow and people always freak out. This has been going on forever now. And I just remind everyone, May is like their best ski month here, folks. Everyone's already like ready to ride their bikes. But uh, you always get one more epic powder day in. Um, once May 1st comes around. Hey, we got a lot to get to on this week's podcast. The Giro d'Italia has started. Last week, we had our storylines to watch during the Giro podcast. This is our first podcast taking you inside the Giro d'Italia. And second half of the show, we have Larry Warbass, uh, American who's racing his fourth Giro d'Italia on the line. And he is actually fielding questions that you, the loyal listener, have submitted to us. You can submit questions by going to mailbag at velonews.com. Email that address. We will get your questions and we will ask those questions to experts like Larry. Uh, Larry is going to field five of your questions about the Giro. But before we get to that, we need to get to all of the thrilling action that we saw. Now, look, podcasting during a Grand Tour poses some challenges because we record the podcast, we edit it, and then it goes up like the next day. And by that day, the whole GC picture, the whole status of the race may have changed. But just know we are recording this Tuesday after the thrilling stage four that saw American Joe Dombrowski take his first Grand Tour stage win and saw a shakeup in the GC picture. So we have James Start and Andrew Hood on the line to take us inside this and help us parse and understand what this means for the Giro. Now, before we get to that, we need to catch up with James Start because James, he's back in the man cave in uh, Paris, but he was actually at the Giro for the first few stages as well as the lead up to the race. And uh, James, you were at the race. Um, give us a sense of what the mood and the feeling was around the Giro this year with COVID precautions, with the uh, schedule returning to normal, and just the overall feeling inside the race. 
Uh, I'd say the uh, uh, the mood is good, uh, although it was tense. Uh, RCS, the race organizers, were really starting this out, this race out with a lot of pressure on the teams to keep their distance, keep their distance from other teams, keep their distance from the media, uh, not to mix and mingle in any way, shape, or form. Uh, last year, they got off to a bad start, and it sort of haunted them the whole time because uh, – on one night, uh, on one night uh, in in Sicily, uh, when the race organizers left their hotel, the hotel had a wedding party, and a bunch of the teams had to fight for their buffets with the wedding party and stuff, and it was kind of a mess, and that really haunted them for the rest of the race. So they wanted not, none of that this year, and they uh, were really like uh, the all the team meetings, all the meetings. They were like, "Man, we got, we can't do anything with the media. We can't do any of this or that." And I was just like, for the first couple of days, I just want to get a head start, like photographing some of these bikes and stuff because they had some, you know, some great bikes, and it's always great to see the bikes that are going to be racing. And I was at, uh, I, I was in Londa's hotel because I was uh, uh, in the bubble with RCS because with the official uh, U.S. program, you know, U.S. Uh, guide. And so we uh, we have hotels with R- RCS. I was with them for three days, and I just said, "Hey." Could you have a mechanic take Londa's bike over to a brick wall, put it against that wall, and let me shoot it from ten meters away? And they're like, "No." My most most of the other teams weren't weren't that weren't that hard, but I mean that's how how paranoid some teams were. Um, and I would have to say there are shots I was photographing the prologue when the time trial was officially, and there were a few corners where the riders could you know, be seen coming past some people but by and large the crowds were kept at a pretty pretty big distance i would say uh especially around the start area um and even for myself it was uh for photographing it was very hard to get anywhere close um so you know that that's very much a reality and then the, you know the mixed zones are very much the the thing uh, the way it's happening now and the riders just sort of come in and um say a few words in the mix zones and, and roll out, keeping their distance. Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting observation, James, because I mean, last year, you were right, the first, the big story to come out of the opening week of the Giro was, oh, they put them in, they put the riders in this hotel down in Sicily and the COVID rules were not enforced and a number of guys, in fact, the entire Mitchelton Scott team came down with COVID and had to leave. So, I mean, when you look at this clamped down uh, flavor at the Giro this year. I mean, do you think do you see that as just direct response to what happened last year? Yeah, I think so. In part, I, I always felt like they, you know, I think I think that got a bit overplayed. Um, there was certainly a mistake, but that and that was the only situation where I saw that. I mean, when when Jumbo Visma pulled out or when uh, when uh, Mitchelton pulled out, I mean, I was talking with the teams that were in the same hotels with them the night before. I was like. We didn't see them. I mean, that's how much of we're in our bubbles. But, you know, they they got off to a, a – there was at least one night that was questionable in that one hotel, and they really paid a heavy price for it. So I think that's part of it. And they just got – they got three weeks ahead of them. They want this race to happen. Italy's been hit, obviously, very hard. Um, and they just want this race to, to happen without any snags this year. What's the mood of the riders? You know, you're talking with some of these guys in the mix zone. Like, is it just – back to business as usual or do they feel you know is there is there hope of the sport opening up again what was the sense you got from the riders well you know everybody i think like everybody in the world is 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 tired mentally tired with this um when i spoke with peter sagan at flanders he just said you know we're also kind of worn down by this and he said you know, like for example rube was canceled um and he said well you know okay well they're going to reposition it in october well that could be fine that's a good day for me but 
you know, some of us have been focusing on Rube for months, sacrificing time, training extra, and all of a sudden it's just poof, gone. You know, flights get canceled, poof, gone. And it just, he said, you just don't know what to expect. You don't know what to plan for. It's hard to keep your motivation at the same level uh, and focus on all of these things. Although, obviously, he's been quite motivated. He's already got two victories this year. Um, and he he's clearly came to this Giro, uh, I think, with something to prove. He's, you know, going up for contract. He wasn't able to get the results he wanted last year um, for a variety of reasons. And I think he wants to use this Giro to prove himself. They've, they've looked at, uh, at the Giro and say there's nine potential stages for Peter Sagan. And if nothing else, I would not be surprised to take him, see him take away the Chiclamino jersey. Well, that's definitely a story we're uh, keeping an eye on for this first week of the Giro. But uh, no, good work out there. And you can see James's galleries and stuff that he got from uh, the a few days before the Giro started and also those first few stages on villainews.com. Guys, I want to get into what we just saw today, Tuesday, which was the thrilling stage four. Well, the rainy and cold stage four on a really challenging course. It's uh, Joe Dombrowski winning his first Grand Tour stage. Uh, Hoodie, first of all, let's talk about the significance of this for Joe. You've covered Joe through his entire career. We all remember when he was like the up-and-coming U23 baby Giro winner, destined for great things, going to win big big races and big stages. Uh, here it is now. I believe he's in his late 20s, early 30s. He has his Grand Tour stage. Um what were your thoughts watching Joe pull it off today? And what can you say about the significance of this win in his career? Yeah, it was, it was really great to see Joe get that win because we've seen Joe race the Giro. I think this is his sixth Giro start. You know, he's always out there bashing, trying to get in the breakaways, doing the work for the team. Uh, you know, two years ago, he came into the Giro with a free reign and he was healthy again. And I remember he was in that big stage over the Mortarolo. Got a, a strong result there. Uh, got 12th overall in the Giro that year. His best, uh, his best result in a Grand Tour since he turned pro. But it was always like the story with Joe was like he never quite lived up to the hype. Maybe uh, you know he signed. Remember he signed with Sky for two years. You know a lot of expectations there that he was going to get fit into that Sky machine and perhaps really emerge as as a, as a Grand Tour contender. So uh, you know it didn't work out. He had some health problems there for a couple of years. But to see him come back, it's, it's just that story of what it takes to be a professional. You just you keep working, you keep going, you keep going into the breakaways. And hopefully one day the lightning strikes. And that's what happened today. In fact, you know, you kind of almost forgot Joe was in that break because it was a big group. I think 2025 riders were up the road. Uh, Rain Teramai was up there with the, the other guy. And you kind of forgot that there was a bunch of riders between the GC group and this breakaway off the front. And then suddenly... Joe and uh, DiMarchi, you know, surged into the into the frame there, and and that last climb, it just really showed too, just how smart he's racing now. Because I think an earlier Joe Zambrowski, a younger pro, would have probably raced that stage differently. He knew how a breakaway unfolds. He knows which wheels to follow. He knows where to be in the decisive part of that stage, and he knew it was all going to go off in that last climb. And man, he had just enough in the legs to get up and over the top and. Hold off to Marky for the win. So, chapeau to Joe. We're big fans of Joe Dabrowski here at the Velo News Podcast. So, pretty cool to see him win. Yeah, I I feel like in the past that could have been an instance of seeing him race like we often see a lot of Americans race, which is they're very strong and they kind of want to show everyone how strong they are. But that effort comes at the wrong moment and it ends up sort of dooming them later on the climb or later later in the stage. So, I'm with you, Hoodie. You know, when I 
was watching that, it was like, wow, he's not really putting his nose into the wind too much. He's laying back. He's a real, he's, he's, he's very quiet in that group. And, um, I, I'm with you. That has to be the byproduct of just years and years of bashing your head against the wall. You know, James, I mean, one thing that stands out to me about Joe is he's like a lot of these Americans, you know, he's become kind of an expat. He lives down there in Southern France. He trains, you know, he loves the Giro. Is he in Southern France or is he in Italy? He's in Nice. I, I had coffee with him after uh, after one of the early season races. And you, you know, you've reported on him and spent time with him uh, over the years too. I mean, James, what's your sense of where Joe is at right now in his career? What his ambitions are, and also like what he's trying to accomplish in this move to UAE Team Emirates? You know, I think he, if if memory serves, he uh, was a last minute replacement, huh? Uh, for this. I don't think he was scheduled. He was maybe on the long list for the tour. And I know he'd love to race the tour one year. And, and obviously to help Pogachar win would be amazing. Um, but, uh, you know, a stage win in the Giro was pretty hard to beat. What, what struck me is, you know, we saw a lot of just timeless lessons in bike racing in the last two days. Um, yesterday, uh, we had, uh, was it Taco Van Horn? You know, uh, he said a year ago he's about ready to hang it up. He couldn't find a team, and now he's a Giro, uh, Giro d'Italia winner. Joe has been through it. Uh, he's had, you know, like uh, Andy said, uh, some real uh, hard uh, years where he wasn't able to realize his potential, and all of a sudden, and he's come close in the Giro. He's got third in stages before, but all of a sudden he's a winner. And and even um, and even um, uh, Demarkey. I mean, how many times has that guy been in the breakaway? How many times? You know, he deserves a, a pink jersey too. I mean, it's a lot of things happened to guys in the last two days who just got some a moment of glory because they just keep on hitting it and knocking it and not giving up. I mean, resilience and persistence pays off in this sport, and we saw some real lessons about that. And I think we should take note with Joe. I mean, he had the iliac artery problem, which a lot of cyclists have early in his career. I believe he had surgery on that after his uh, – or during his time at Team Sky. And, you know, that – that uh, that surgery, we've seen it be a gamble for riders from time to time. There are multiple pro cyclists out there who have had the surgery and have had that problem, and you know it never got. They never got back to hundred percent. They never got back onto their previous trajectory. And with Joe, I mean, it did seem like he got on onto his trajectory after that. But uh, you know, it's bike racing is a tricky sport. Doesn't matter how strong you are, you have to be smart. You have to be cunning. You have to be on the right team in the right situation in the right you know, mindset to be able to do that. And so when you see a win like this today for someone like Joe, it's just a reminder that like none, none of this stuff is guaranteed, you know, when we see these top juniors coming up and these top U23s and they're so talented and strong, like there's no guarantee that they're ever going to win a race, win a Grand Tour stage, contend for a Grand Tour stage. There's so many different things that can pop up. So when you do see a guy where there's, you know, no guarantees and a lot of promise putting it together, I, I don't know. It, it seems, it, it feels real good. Um, I also think this this is an important stage win for him too. Um, the Olympic selection, you know, uh, there's no real hard and fast criteria for making onto the road team, and I believe it's going to be coaches' selection. So a win at the Giro d'Italia could uh, graduate Joe onto the U.S. Olympic team if he wants to go. It'd be tremendous for him. Just yeah, like you said, I mean, who who can't be happy for Joe uh, today? He, he just it, it could you know, hey, sometimes nice nice guys do finish first. 
And today was one of those days. Kudos to Joe. One of the reasons why uh, it was a big kudos to him is because this stage was a brutal stage. On paper, this was one of the stages I was looking at before the Giro and saying, is this a GC day? Is this a breakaway day? Is this What is this day? You know, there's a lot of up and down and up and down. There's a final climb to the finish. It's not going to be decisive, but it's steep. And then the X factor that you throw into it today, which is driving rain and cold temperatures and just those images of the guys wearing the rain capes, looking cold, grimacing, looking tired. Hoodie, what can you say about the conditions and the profile and how it contributed to what you saw with with the GC guys when the the punches started to fly there at the end? Yeah, it's been interesting to to watch the last two days of racing with these breakaways staying clear. I mean, uh, in the Monday stage with uh, Taco Vanderhorn, you know, I was down to the last couple of meters, kind of got lucky there. Yeah, but just the fact that it stayed away yesterday on Monday and then again today kind of just tells me that people are riding cautiously so far in these GC teams. They don't want to waste a lot of bullets, especially today in the, in the, in the rainy stage Tuesday, that, you know, the, the pink jersey was there for the taking. Um, you know, had the GC teams really controlled this stage, they could have set up any any one of those guys could have taken the jersey today because, uh, you know, it was pretty obvious that Ghana wasn't going to defend it. But I think people are, are riding into this Giro, I think, very cautiously. You know, looking into that second half of the race, that second last week is always hard. Didn't want to waste a lot of bullets today. So, you know, the guys that were in the break, you know, really read the race in, in the right way. And then uh, when, the, when the big moves went there at the end – yeah, definitely some surprises. Uh, Meda, you know, not going to be right, riding the same way he raced last year. Bernal was looking sharp. Um, you know, it's hard to read too much into that split between there was that one group off the front, the four or five guys, 10 seconds behind. There was Yates coming through with Remco. Can't read too much into that. But a few guys behind losing to another 20, 30 seconds. Nibali's, those guys, uh, doesn't bode well really for uh, kind of what's coming. Uh, this weekend and then going into that second and third week. Yeah, I remember what you said in our uh, discussion on last week's podcast about like what to watch for with these guys returning from injury. And it's like, boy, the first the first time there's a real um, uphill slog and the pace goes up, you're going to watch these GC favorites to see who's really ready. Because like sometimes it's those first turns of speed in a really tough day that shakes things loose. And we did see things shake loose. I mean, it was Landa who kicked things off at the base of that final climb. And I was really impressed by the ease at which Egan Bernal bridged across to him. He looked so smooth. He got on the front. He drove the pace. Hugh Carthy was up there as well. Julio Ciccone. Vlasov, you know, he made it into the group, but it looked like he had to work pretty hard to get in there. But from then on, I mean, Bernal sprinted for the win, looked really smooth. I was most impressed with the way Egan Bernal looked. Um, 11 seconds later, you have Remco, Ivanapool, Roman Bardet, uh, Simon Yates, and uh, some other favorites. But yeah, the, you know, Nibali, Emmanuel Buchmann, Pavel Sivakov, Jay Hindley, Mark Soler, Pelo Bilbao, they finished another 40 seconds down. And then the, the big loser was George Bennett and uh, Joao Almeida, whose Giro GC run is probably done here. But when I think back to that action, I'm just thinking about how smooth Egan Bernal uh, looked. James, what's your assessment of what we saw from the GC favorites today? It's hard to it's it, it you know it's dangerous to take too many takeaways because the rain I think did have its effect. But on paper, when I look at when I look at Simon Yates losing 10, 10 or eleven seconds or how many seconds did he lose I forget, and Evanipol losing the same amount of time, there's two completely different stories there. 
Uh, Simon Yates came into this, this race flying. He's not going to improve. He should not have lost one second. If anything, he should have taken time, or he certainly should have been with, with Bernal. Evanopol hasn't raced in a year. Uh, we don't know where he's at, but he had a tremendous time trial. And, um, you know, if he can do that uh, right, right away on his first day, his first uphill finish, or essentially uphill finish after not racing for a year for, what is he, 20, 21 now? I mean, that's pretty impressive, I think. Uh, I think that Roman Bardet had a tremendous day. He has not overraced this year. I think he's going to come into this now with Hinley off the back. I think he's going to, I think, I think he's going to be one of the big, big riders in this race, to be honest with you. He has no pressure, no French pressure. He's discovering this race. He's got a great head on his shoulders right now and he's excited. And I think a third week's going to play into him. He also knows how to ride the Strade Bianchi. Uh, so Bianchi rides, he got second one year. Um, I, so I think that was a very good ride. Um, you know, I, I totally agree with you on Bernal. Blasov, I, Thought he had a pretty good kick. At one point, he was right there with, I think it was uh, with uh, Landa when Landa went. Landa looked good when he went. Um, so I was a little surprised. Uh, let's not forget that uh, all the big favorites, Vlasov had the best time trial, I think, uh, outside of, say, Eventable, who's obviously a good time trial. But of the, the kind of climbing-based GC riders, Vlasov had a very good TT. So uh, I, I'd say there's still a question mark about that with him. But very interesting. Again, with the rain, it could be a one a one one off for any of these guys, but a lot of very interesting things happened. Another cool storyline: Alessandro Demarchi took pink. He's an Italian veteran. We've seen kicking around, banging around for a long time. I remember him BMC. He actually won the first edition of the Colorado Classic with a cheeky move on the final day. Real smart racer. But you know, he's like uh, I see him as you know he's a good climber. He's a good time trial. He's not going to win the Giro, but. Um, this a it means a lot for Israel's startup nation to hold pink and to have a leader's jersey in a Grand Tour, but uh, James and Hoodie, what's your sense of how long Demarkey could now hold pink? Yeah, I think depending on how the race plays out, he could carry it into the weekend. I think pretty easily. Um, it's just interesting too that Demarkey is kind of like this uh, prototypical kind of modern Italian pro. You know, right there, very professional, always where he needs to be, but just doesn't quite have that superstar quality. You know, Nibali really is only the big, big star that Italy has right now. Uh, you know, back in the day, I mean, James, you've been around longer than I have. I mean, the Italians used to rule the Peloton in the sprints and the GC in the classics. And right now, Italy is really struggling. We have Ciccioni coming up, you know, some other guys, Aru is struggling. He kind of already flamed out, it seems like. You know, there's some other guys coming up, but it's like there's a lot of Italian pros still in the Peloton, but a lot of them, are, they're just not the superstars they used to be. So, you know, happy for DeMarco to get that pink jersey because, you know, like you said, Fred, he deserves it because he's the consummate pro, but he's just not the, the superstar level rider that Italy used to have for so many years. Yeah, he's not a real uh... – Climbers, you know, a real brake specialist is what I play him as. Uh, I've seen him win stages when he was back with uh, Cannondale, uh, Dauphiné stages, you know, in front of Sky, just going, launching, and, and being the last guy to hold off. He's like, you know, he's more like a Thomas de Ghent kind of rider, uh, to be honest, for me. Um, but, yeah, I agree. It's just, you know, the, the Italian uh, crop currently is is, uh, is is pretty thin. Obviously, Nibali's coming back off of a wrist fracture. Anything he does is going to be icing on the cake. Uh, is he going to be there for the GC this year? I I think it's going to be tough, uh, but I don't 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 be surprised to see him go for the stages. I think that um, Ciccone is 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 a real force to be reckoned with. He's a smart rider; he can do a lot of things. Uh, is he going to be a world beater? I don't know. I don't think so. But um, he's going to be. He's a very classy rider, very smart rider, 
and he's going to be a consistent uh, producer in the years to come. Um, but mostly I just, you know, anytime a, a guy like uh, DeMarkey gets a little bit of glory, I'm really happy because those guys spend so many hours uh, not being rewarded for the work that they do for a team or the hours they spend in breakaways to get caught and things like that. So I thought it was just tremendous. Yeah, I think that's been one of the awesome storylines for the for the first couple stages of this Giro is the unsung heroes really rising to the fore yesterday with Taco Vanderhorn, today with Dombrowski and with DeMarkey. And in fact, our very own Saif O'Shea has been uh, – will be chronicling the stories of some of these unsung heroes on the site throughout the Giro with interviews with some uh, not-so- Spotlighty writers uh, telling the very human side of their experiences throughout the Giro. So stay tuned to that. Uh, last talking point I have for you guys. This was one of our 15 um, storylines that we were following, which is Remco, 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 Remco. Uh, now with Almeida falling out of the GC picture and Remco showing himself very early to be strong. Um, Hoodie, what is your guess as to the overall frenzy level of the Belgian media at the moment. I mean, are they all booking flights, Ryanair flights to Italy right now? Are they like, you know, eating all the cheese and drinking all the Belgian beer? Like if you were in the Belgian media right now, what would your uh, modus operandi be? Yeah, if, if the Belgian journalists aren't there already, they're soon packing their bags. Actually, I was poking around in some of the uh, the main Belgian newspapers today and it really is the Giro de Remco because uh, I counted on one website. I think it was Het Lot News. Het Lot News. Uh, nine nine cycling stories. Uh, seven were Remco. You go over to Sporza, same thing. They had seven or eight uh, cycling stories on their website with video, and five or six of them were were all Remcos. And uh, you know, it's just a frenzy. I mean, Belgium. What, what's different about Remco? I mean, yeah, he's a winner. He's got charisma. You know, he's, he's going to be a big star. But what the big difference with Remco is that he's a GC rider. Now, Belgium has not had a GC rider for a long, long time. The last one, last uh, Grand Tour winner was Lucien Van Emp, 1976. And I was looking at uh, Remco's dad was eight years old when uh, when Van Emp won. So, you know, Remco was not even a, a fragment of, <laughs> of his dad's imagination. Um, so, it, you know, it's been a long, long time. Since you know, it's like uh, it's like the Cubs not winning the World Series. I mean, the Belgians love cycling, so for them to have kind of legitimate GC star to put that in context, that's what that means. It's like the Red Sox or the Cubs, you know, getting in the World Series. So if Remco can get into this Giro, you know, have a pretty decent performance, maybe even get on the podium, it'll just kick off a bigger frenzy than it already is. Yeah, I think. But don't forget, uh, Eddie says one. What does Eddie say? Remco's still got everything to prove. We'll see. It's, uh, you know, on paper, this guy should not make it through three weeks. I mean, he's 20. Is he 21? Uh, hasn't raced for a year. Uh, hasn't been tested in the high mountains. On paper, the guy should not uh, make it through three weeks. If he does, he is the next Diddy Merckx. I, uh, I, am, I am hopeful. I am optimistic. I am buying my Remco stock right now. It's actually pretty high. If you didn't buy your uh, a while ago, um, it's, it's already sky high. It's like Boulder real estate. You can't get in now. <laughs> well, guys, we're going to keep following these early Giro storylines. Can DeMarkey hold pink? Will Joe Dombrowski win another stage? Will the unsung heroes of the breakaways uh, survive to win again and again? Um, and we will check in with the both of you uh, a week from today. Let's now hear from Larry Warbass, who's going to field your amazing questions from the Giro d'Italia.
Okay, now joining us from an undisclosed location, probably in a hotel somewhere, it's American Larry Warbass. You're at the Giro. Uh, Larry, you know, we've heard that like um, security around the riders at the Giro is very tight this year to keep all the fans and pesky media from uh, bugging you when you're at your hotel. So we're we're not going to ask you where you are right now in in Italy right now, you know, for your security. Well, even even if you ask me, I honestly don't know where we are, so uh, I couldn't really help you out. Well, uh, Larry, as the listeners uh, may know, is doing an awesome video diary for us throughout the Giro d'Italia, and he's taking us inside his Giro, and he's answering some of your questions. And uh, we're checking in with Larry after stage three. That was the finishing solo breakaway. Uh, by Taco Vanderhorn. Before we get to some of these reader questions, Larry, I just want want to get your take on like this breakaway that we saw from Taco. What can you say about the challenge involved in something like that? Like a day long breakaway that's real close to getting pulled back, and then it doesn't work. You know, then the the breakaway guy ends up winning. What can you say about the overall effort and challenge involved in a move like that? Yeah, it's definitely tough. You know, it's like, first of all, you have to like make the break, which, uh, you know, sometimes can be a big fight. Today, it went pretty quickly at the start. Uh, you know, it was like, it was raining. So it was kind of hectic at the start. And uh, yeah, a pretty good group actually went away. Um, so, so yeah, it was a good, strong, hey, guys. And they obviously rode pretty hard because we went really fast in the peloton behind. Um, and for a while, we didn't really pull back a whole lot of time. So, um, they definitely would have had to ride pretty hard up there. And then, um, yeah, I think just to even be able to keep, the, you know, the, I don't know if it's the motivation or just, you know, when you, it looked like they were going to be caught the way the break was coming down or, you know, like the time gap was coming down. So to keep the faith, I guess, uh, while you're out there is also, you know, a big thing. So, uh, yeah, Taco kept the faith and, uh, he obviously had amazing legs today to hold everyone off. And that was pretty cool. Uh-huh. It was. I think a lot of us were cheering for the guy. And um, like you said, sometimes it's, you know, legs, but also keeping the faith. So that was really cool to see. So, Larry, the readers have been peppering us so far with a lot of like tech questions and gear questions. And I'm not going to ask them all to you, but I do have a couple. The one that we've gotten over and over again revolves around this upcoming stage 11. That's the uh, the titular gravel stage on the Strada Pianche. And people have a lot of question about like, are people going to be running alternative bike setups, different tire widths? You know, I mean, do you have any insight on that? I mean, do you think you'll be doing a different tire width or maybe a little bit different setup for your bike for that stage? Yeah, so I'll probably ride my climbing bike with <clears> – I've been riding tubeless actually quite a bit um, the last <clears> – <throat> Well, yeah, I have the last two days I've been riding tubeless, um, but I will also – I'm nearly sure ride tubeless on the gravel day and then – I've been riding 26 tires, so if we have 28s, I'll probably put on 28s, I would guess. Um, and I think it'll probably be pretty similar for most of the guys in the peloton. I think a lot of teams will ride tubeless and maybe a little beefier tires. I'll ride the tires that I've been riding because they're pretty good, I think, in terms of like puncture resistance. They're not super fragile. Uh, yeah, cross my fingers. Um, and then yeah, if we have 28s i think i'll probably ride 28s that day awesome 28s just like just like you back home listener riding your 28s because you're a mixed surface person you know here's another one about gear and it's about disc brakes when you look around at the peloton on the start line i mean what percentage would you say are on disc brakes at this point so the only it's only now in naos is all on rim brakes and then uae they have the option between rim and disc brakes um 
And so, you know, quite a few of those guys, I would say probably five out of the eight guys on the team would ride rim brakes um, because it's lighter. And then <clears throat> I don't know if there's any other teams that ride uh, rim brakes anymore. So, but yeah, the guys who do ride rim brakes, it's just because of the weight um, because the bikes are <clears throat> pretty heavy with, with discs. In a five-year time, just to see how quickly that uh, has gone from, you know, one or two teams here and there to the, basically the whole Peloton. That's, in, that's, that's impressive. Yeah, to exactly. See. <clears throat> yeah. Um, here's a question that I've gotten time again to like myself, um, but it'd be interesting to get your take on this. Um, how long, or take, take your strong local cat one, place them in the Giro d'Italia Peloton. How long do you think they would survive in a typical Giro stage? So let's say it's like your typical American cat one whose training peaks are always green and who's strong and knows how to like really train. Like if you plop them into a Giro stage, how long do you think they're staying in the group? Well, it totally depends. So like yesterday, I would say like, you know, I would definitely say a cat three could easily have finished in the bunch yesterday. Um, like uh, for the people, the data geeks, I averaged 135 watts uh, for the stage yesterday, <laughs> like, <clears throat> which is like crazy, you know? So I guess it was like really easy, but that was also nice because we don't get so many days like that anymore in pro cycling. And so we were able to chat and uh, yeah, it was, it was fun. You know, I was with my friends who I haven't seen in a long time and it was actually pretty nice. Um, but then today it was hard. So um, I would say, Today, probably, uh, it was flat the first half, but I would say once we hit the climbs, after the first climb, maybe they could make it over the first climb, but then after that, it would, they'd probably be dropped by the next climb. <laughs> so, but I mean, you know, there were obviously like, um, there were people getting dropped on, on that climb as well. So, um, you know, it just kind of depends on the stage and how we ride it. Um, but, you know, a lot of it is actually, you know, a lot of it's to do with positioning and, you know, sometimes like the race splits more on the descents than it does on the climbs because everyone's so strong. Um, but it's easier to make like the difference on the descent sometimes than it is on the climb. Yeah. That's an answer I typically give when people ask me about life in the world tour Peloton. I mean, obviously I've never ridden in it, but the feedback that I've gotten is a lot of times it's just positioning and whether it's like straight roads or whether it's zany, crazy, roads and that will just de depend on how you know how long a fish out of water could last exactly yeah but i would say in general the pace is like <clears throat> even you can tell a huge difference between you know uh, hc race or pro race uh or like a point one and a world tour race like just the general speed is much higher in a world tour race and i would say even more so in a grand tour uh, here's an interesting question. How far out do riders study each Grand Tour stage profiles? Like when the Giro announces its 2021 route, do you immediately go online, start pouring over the profiles, looking to see if one is right for you? Or do you only start thinking about the stages and profiles once you've been assigned to a Grand Tour? Hmm. <clears throat> so I would say it's probably a mix. Like, <clears throat> you know, <clears throat> I would maybe like – when the routes are announced, I would like gl gloss over, you know, I'd look at like what climbs are there. I'd look at like the profiles. I'd look at, um, you know, what it is, but I wouldn't look that in depth probably. So, um, <clears throat> once I was in the grand tour, you know, so like for here, I like looked at all the climbs and the profiles before coming here, but like every night before the stage, I look really in depth, you know? Um, 
and I like to go on Google Earth and I'll like, you know, do street view and I'll check out everything. But, you know, then there's if there's the guys who are going for GC, they, they do uh, the full recon and stuff for a lot of the stages. So then they <clears throat> they go and ride the course, you know, uh, in the months leading up to the race. So, yeah, it just kind of depends, I guess, on what your goals are. And, you know, um, yeah, I'd say for me, it's kind of like I look I look a lot more closely the closer I get to the race. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And I would imagine, I mean, for some of these races that you've done again and again and again, like you'll have some knowledge at least of like the region or maybe some of the roads that organizers tend to use year in, year out. I mean, when you've been doing it. Absolutely. Yeah. Like when you have done a race like a few times, you end up doing a lot of the same roads and then you like, Oh, you know, you recognize like, Oh, I've been here before. And it's kind of funny because sometimes, you know, you end up staying in the same hotels too. It's like, and sometimes maybe you forget and then you're like, computer picks up the Wi-Fi already and you're like, oh, wow, <laughs> guess I was here. So, All right, last question I got for you from the readers um, is about food, which is, you know, Italy, as we all know, is famous for its meals. Um, what's your favorite Giro d'Italia meal? Like what is the Giro d'Italia food or meal that you are most looking forward to when you're getting ready to, to head to Italy? Mm, well, the thing is we have a chef, so, um, you know, we – yeah, we have like the chef cooks everything for us. So <clears throat> we don't eat at the hotels. Um, but sometimes I see what the staff eats and I'm like, oh, wow, that looks amazing. You know, um, I would say in Italy, uh, it's the one country where when you come to these races, you know, sometimes you don't even really need a chef because the food is just so good at like all the hotels and everything. But I mean, I'm really a sucker for really good pasta or gnocchi. Uh, so <clears throat> When I'm in Italy, I love, I love, uh, I love just an amazing plate of pasta or gnocchi or, <clears throat> I mean, pizza is also good, but, uh, <clears throat> we don't need that really in the races. So, <laughs> yeah, I, that, I, I would think that the Giro, yeah, is probably the only race where you're going by and maybe a little jealous of what the other people are eating. Um, yeah, sometimes, yeah. Yeah, with France, you know, kind of hit or miss <laughs> with seeing, mm, yeah. you know, if it's like French, More pe- miss French than pizza. Hit, yeah. yeah. Awesome. Well, Larry, you have been uh, doing a wonderful job at answering the people's questions. And um, again, no problem. Keep them coming. We appreciate the videos you've been doing. And if you, the listener, would love to answer, uh, ask Larry a question, our email is mailbag at velonews.com. And we're hitting uh, Larry and also Daniel Oss with questions and also questions for world tour mechanics that we're going to start up here pretty soon throughout the uh, Giro. But Larry, I'd love to catch up with you maybe a week from now, hit some more questions and see how everything's going on uh, at the Giro. Sounds great. And yeah, and I, I really, I also don't mind those, uh, those tech questions because I'm actually personally, I'm really into all the tech stuff and I, I'm really always looking at everything, all the equipment and the Peloton and uh, yeah, checking out everything and looking pretty close. So <clears throat> uh, I, I like those questions too. Yeah, I thought I thought it would be hit or miss. You know, some riders you start asking them about like tire width and you know tire pressure, how many bars here and there, and their eyes kind of glaze over, and they're like, ah, man, you know, look, you're just trying to get me in trouble with disc brakes or something. But other other riders like really perk up. So I I appreciate you uh, chiming in on those ones. Yeah, no problem. All right, Larry, we will let you get back to your evening there in Italy. Thank you so much for calling in to the Velo News podcast. Thanks, Fred. Talk to you later.